Welcome to Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. Tonight's theme is Foot in Mouth, stories of life-changing split-second choices and gaffes. This event was broadcasted live from Zoom on February 25th, 2021. Your host this evening is Ellen Frankenstein. Normally, we'd gather at the Bean Restaurant, in the Fisheye Cafe, or the lower level of the Mean Queen, packing people into small spaces to listen to each other, to connect over stories, laughing together, and sometimes tearing up. The clinking of cups and glasses, the shuffling of chairs, the murmur of the crowd. Oh, those are things we've all missed over the past year. And it wasn't until one of the tellers in tonight's lineup told me she had a story to share that it dawned on me, why not bring Sitka Tells Tales back to life on the air? So here we are. Please get cozy, sip a warm beverage, and listen to Foot and Mouth, stories of life-changing split-second choices and gaffes. There will be six stories tonight filled with awkward encounters, times far from home, and moments of insight. Our tellers in this order are Greta Healy, Rachel Marino, Finn Straley, Austin Thomas, Lisa Bush, and Frank Ecker. Now, you getting cozy? Because we've got a special act to warm us up. One of our tellers, Rachel Moreno, not only was up for sharing a tale, but she encouraged me to get in touch with the popular Alaska band, Bumia, with a song that fits our theme so well. So please welcome Asi, the song's author and a gifted illustrator and drum maker raised in Shafornak, to introduce and to perform Bubblegum. Oyana people from Anchorage, Alaska to the Southeast Panhandle. Great to hear people and see. Well, this song came about from after teaching at Raw High up in Fairbanks in one of the summers, and I caught one of my students chewing gum. He's from one of the new villages, and he got embarrassed when I caught him chewing gum. And then I said, it was a Friday evening. Uh, afternoon, and I was like, maybe I'll make you immortal. So I woke up with the tune the next morning, and I walked on the song, and the words are Damolo Yagiralo. Damolo is chewing Yagiralo while I'm dancing. And the beginning of each song in, in a classic, classically um, traditional Yupi composition that I made, and Pagahunka up there. Unrahun down there, akulihun, and I'm appearing in between Damak and chewing gum. And so this is a song about it. But the video that we recorded that was in Uniclete, and it's kind of a piggyback off of this popular Flying Wild Alaska show that was popular for a while. And Ariel Tweedo, which we give credit to, brought us out there as a suicide prevention program to address some of our challenges that as we face in the villages uh, you know in that regard and the song basically where I come from unlike some of the cultures are more stricter than some other cultures which is fine just how some cultures are but anyhow I learned how to make songs after singing other people's work for about 10 years and then from there I took it further by 
making song about bubblegum and make, taking a foreign object and celebrating it. And we even in some of the villages, they even have a song about playing basketball. So that's just how we are about celebrating the world around us and us as individuals. So if you watch the video, you'll be treated to some of the most amazing sunsets in the background, which uh, added a lot as well as the community. So that's the quick and short version of the song and the video behind it. It'll just be an acapella version of it. And the beginning part of the song, you know, like in a lot of our songs, when you say, when the phrase is repeated twice, that is the main idea behind a song, as a set song. And then there's verses to it. And it'll say, Bakumu, the person from way up north, Ilaga Rakut, has joined us. And while he's dancing, he becomes aware I caught him chewing gum. And that's in the first verse. Then the second verse is, when I started teasing him a little bit, even if I am embarrassed, I'm trying to dance. And in the songs, like when I teach them, I, I could tell that my students get very embarrassed or I kind of get bored. So I switch it at the very last day for about a half hour. I tell them, okay, guys, you know the five songs. So what I'm going to do just to rattle your boredom is I'm going to sing all of them and I'm going to hopscotch from one song to another. And your challenge is you keep up with me. And it's fun to watch them. They stop briefly for like two, three seconds and they're like, they think about the song. It's like, oh, this is how it goes. And they get on track with the emotions. But this is the song. It goes like this. Thank you, Lassie. Wow, so glad you joined us. Up next is the first of our six storytellers, Greta Healy. Greta has lived in Sitka for five years, working various jobs, most recently for the Sitka Food Co-op, the Sitka Conservation Society, and the Sitka Tribe of Alaska. She loves playing with her dog and diving into projects. Take it away, Greta. My story starts back in the winter of 2018. I was having feelings of wanting to travel and leave Sitka for a little bit, not really knowing why or when or how. So I booked a ticket to New Zealand and I 
went to New Jersey first to drop off my dog and to see my mom. And she asked what my plan was. And I told her month of January, I'll be in the North Island of New Zealand. And the month of February, I'll be in the South. And that was pretty much it. And I left. I got to New Zealand like January 5th. And I landed in Auckland at like 4am. Didn't really know what my plan was. So I was walking around the city confused about why I was in a city halfway around the world. So I booked the first bus I could up to Whangarei in the north of New Zealand. And I spent the night at the hostel in the morning. I got on the bus. It was a two hour long journey. And I was pretty excited as soon as I was on the bus to just be in rolling hills. And the bus driver was really funny. He kept like at every stop, he would just recite the names of the people getting off and then the names of the people getting on. So it was like for 10 minutes on either side of the stop, he would just talk. And he let me off at this roundabout. And I had a friend that I was trying to get to. um, And I knew she was like 10 miles away. And so my plan was kind of just to see if I could hitchhike because it was so hot. Um, And if I couldn't get a ride, then I was just gonna walk. But I went across the street and I grabbed sunscreen and a beer and I hopped on the side of the road and I put on some sunscreen on my nose because I was so worried about getting sunburned and I put out my thumb I looked at my watch because I was like okay if it takes more than 30 minutes I'll just start walking and I put out my thumb and four cars went by and then the fifth car stopped and I was like wow I looked at my watch it had been like four minutes and the window rolled down and a woman she was like oh hello where are you going? And I was like, oh, this campground to find a friend. And she was like, okay, it's really dangerous as a woman to be hitchhiking in New Zealand. She was a local, but she was like, I want to give you a ride. So I got in the car. She had two dogs in the way back and I put my hiking backpack in the back seat and I hopped in. It was literally a six minute drive to the campsite. And we got to talking, her name was Val and she was going down South to go on vacation. And she dropped me off at my campsite and I was getting out of the car And I got my backpack and I was closing the door and she just like looked at me and asked if I wanted to go on vacation with her. And in my head, I was like, this is crazy because I don't know this person. It's been six minutes and I think no. And so I was like, thank you. But I like just got here. I'm excited to be out of Auckland. So I said no, started closing the door and then just like turned around and said yes. And I was like, I do want to go on vacation. Let's go. So I got back in the car. We drove right back to Auckland. I spent the night in the hostel that I had spent the night in the night before. Then she drove us south. And then we ended up in a town called Omori on the lake, Lake Taupo. And we just like hung out for a week with her sister. And on the drive there, I just got to know this like awesome woman. I remember her in this like purple tunic and she talked The whole time, I remember being like having a sore throat at the end of it because she just chatted constantly and it was amazing. And we talked about our families. She had lived in Oman for a long time and she was excited to be back in New Zealand. Her daughter was like an amazing ice skater. Anyway, I just got to know this awesome little woman. She was really short and her two dogs. And on the way out from Lake Taupo, we picked up her mother-in-law. And so her mother-in-law was an artist named Doreen and we traveled up the coast with her and we did like a mini little road trip and then we ended up right back in Fongaray where I had been trying to catch the bus in the first place and yeah she let me base out of her house which was really cool she lived in this beautiful gray 
house on the peninsula. And yeah, her ex-husband let me borrow his car. And I went on some road trips with a friend. And I like just lived with her and her two dogs, Bella and Archie. And we had a blast. And that was like my first 24 hours that turned into a week and a half in New Zealand. And it was just this moment decision that that made it happen, which was really cool. Yeah. And I think it really cemented in me that I really love not having a plan for better or for worse, which is fine. And also that the community is just about the people around you. So even traveling alone, you can just meet people and then it doesn't feel like you're traveling alone anymore, which is really cool. So I'm excited for these events to be in person again, because that means we get to see all of each other. So thank you. Thank you so much. That was Greta Healy. You are tuned into a special live radio presentation of Sitka Tells Tales. Now, please welcome our next storyteller, Rachel Marino. Thank you so much, Ellen. I am so happy to be a part of this. For those of you who don't know me, I was born in Sitka a very long time ago, and I uh, have served on our tribal council for eight years, and I served as a search board of director, and I now serve on a national tourism board of directors. And I've had all these titles and things that kind of make people think I might be important, but really I just happen to get into things. So my stories have to do with whether or not when we hear a story or watch the news, do we hear things literally Can we see them happening if the news broadcaster or storyteller is doing a really good job? Well, some of that is really good journalism or really good storytelling. But in my case, it's being really naive. And you'll understand when you hear my stories. I'm old enough to say back in the 70s when I was watching the news on a television, not on a phone or a computer, but a television, a small screen, you know, you tend back then and not so much now, but you believed everything the broadcasters said because they really only reported the news. They had no opinions about what they were saying. They reported the news. And and I kind of miss that. But a couple instances that were happening then in the 70s really were so disturbing to me. One was happening in Central America. You know, there was a lot of fighting between the Central American countries, and I didn't really understand the political reasons of why they were fighting. What really captured my attention and frustrated me and made me feel so angry about the news and what was being reported was the use of guerrilla warfare. And I didn't understand. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. You know, the the countries were were fighting amongst each other so hard, trying to win whatever war or disagreement, whatever it was that they were fighting about, I didn't care. The only thing I cared about was that they were using guerrilla warfare and I wanted to do something about it. I wanted to stop it, but I didn't know how. And, oh my goodness, the only thing I could think of to do was maybe to get a hold of Jane Goodall. Surely she could stop the guerrilla warfare. And I just couldn't imagine how to get a hold of her in Africa. So 
I forgot about this. I wanted to start a campaign. I wanted to stop it the best I could. And I just didn't know what to do. And after a little while, I forgot about this. And other things happened in my life. You know, I graduated from high school and I got married and, and I pushed that to the back of my mind. And then it came up again when I was telling this story to my ex-husband and our friend, Kevin. You know, we were talking about politics and war, the Middle East. And I told them, yeah, you know, in the 70s, they used gorillas to fight their battles. How could they possibly train gorillas to hold those machine guns? Why would anybody make gorillas <laughs> fight their battles? That's so inhumane. That was just unbelievable to me. And after they picked themselves up off the floor, they explained to me that guerrilla warfare was a term. It was not a real thing. Oh my gosh, I was so embarrassed. So I got over that. Oh, thank goodness. Now, my next story happened only in November. So yes, I'm still naive. So be careful what you tell me, okay? So I was in Anchorage with a friend of mine and I had some medical appointments. So he was nice enough to escort me up there and I rented a car and I was driving. And so he brought up out of the blue something he'd heard on the news. He asked me if I heard about in Northern European countries, you know, they're a lot less demonizing of drug users and drug abuse because they really try to help people afflicted with drug addictions. They, they have great health care. They're very supportive. They provide safe needles. They provide, you know, all kinds of, of services to people addicted to drugs. And he told me that there was a new one where this guy, you could take your drugs to him and he would test them for you. And I thought, what? He does what? He says, well, yeah, he'll test the drugs for you and make sure they're safe. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I'm still driving and still trying to process what I was hearing. And I thought, oh my God, that's a terrible job. How could you do a job and be high all the time? <laughs> it's so dangerous. I mean, what if he dies from one of these street drugs? Anyways, he explained to me that no, he doesn't actually take the drugs. He performs tests on the drugs to make sure they're safe. So those are my two silly stories. Thank you so much for listening. Goodness, Chief Rachel, that was great. Our third storyteller is a writer and comedian born and raised in Sitka. He spent the last nine years living in California, but now he's back home. Please welcome Finn Straley. So I think for a background for this story, there's just one thing I think you would need to know about me. And that's basically as long as I can remember my whole life, I've wanted to do comedy. I like perform it. I love jokes. Uh, I love performing. I love the, just the fact that you can put words together in a specific way that will get like a physical reaction out of people has always been just like the most magical, coolest thing to me. And I, I truly, as long as I can remember, can remember it's something I've wanted to pursue and almost as much as that I've wanted the lifestyle of doing comedy I've wanted to travel from town to town across the United States and across the world telling jokes and blowing people's minds with my 
my sense of humor or whatever. And, you know, not having a nine to five, like being my own boss, like all that stuff was so cool to me. And it's all I have ever wanted, truly. It's It's been my my ambition for my whole life. So I pursued it basically as soon as I could. I moved to LA and started doing open mics and cut to five years later. And I'm doing comedy. I'm, I'm working all day and then going to shows and doing sets and things until midnight or 1am or however late it is, driving all over the city and feeling exhausted and run down and just feeling completely stuck where I am. And it was a point in my life where I, I decided I just needed to do something really crazy. And what I did was I, I quit my job and I booked a tour for myself. I booked a tour from L.A. to New York and back to L.A. doing shows the entire route. Uh, I just called everybody I knew, anyone who would have any leads. I messaged bookers directly. I just I, I put it all together. And the whole thing took like six months to plan. And then I was on the road for three months. And it was one of the best experiences of my whole life. I feel so incredibly lucky that I got to have the experience of having something really live up to what your expectations of it would be. I think that never happens. That's that's so impossible that it really was, it's something I've wanted my whole life and I, I did it. I, I would end up doing it multiple times and it, it, it was wonderful. I went from town to town and I made so many friends, lifelong friends, I told jokes. I saw so many cities and weird bars and comedy theaters and festivals, and it was just absolutely fantastic. It was also very dangerous. I should say that. <laughs> I didn't really, I didn't plan it as safely as I possibly could have, but I was young enough that I was never scared except for one time. And that's what I want to tell you about. That's really the story I want to talk about now. And it was in St. Louis, which I think is appropriate. So halfway through across my first time, I came to St. Louis and the way that I usually got places to stay would just be to call random people. And most cities will have like a person whose kind of job it is in the comedy scene to like put people up when they're coming through. But in St. Louis, for some reason, I just kind of ended up staying with like a friend of a friend who was kind of tangentially related to comedy, but I didn't really know this person. And I had stayed in some sketchy areas before, but it was always like, feel it felt pretty normal. But in St. Louis, for some reason, it felt really sketchy. And I got there and immediately the house and the, the whole vibe of it was a little bit off. And the guy came out to meet me and he was very nice. I should say that he was very sweet. We went into the house and we entered through the basement, which is always a bad sign. When you're staying somewhere overnight, you want to enter through the front door. That's something that I've realized now as a grown up. But I didn't really think too much of it, although I did get kind of weird vibes in the basement. It was a little bit run down. I was getting kind of like, this is a sketchy situation vibes. And the guy was very nice. He showed me the whole basement. He showed me his room, which was in the basement. And he showed me all of his DVDs, which I don't know why that's such a weird detail to me, but it, it's such a strange thing to do when you're like introducing someone is to like show them all the movies you own. That doesn't really have anything to do with the story, but it was just weird to me. So he showed me everything. And then we came upstairs and there was a drug party happening upstairs. There were people doing drugs which again, I don't really have a problem with, but it was like, it's not the exact thing you want like when you're staying somewhere overnight. It didn't make me feel safe. And there was one guy in particular who looked like a cartoon to me of a scary drug guy, like especially like as a sheltered Sitka 
person. It was like he had no shirt and a vest and a big necklace that had like a crucifix and like a really tight blonde crew cut. And he just looked mad and really strong. He was the most terrifying person I've ever been close to in my life, I think. And he did not like me at all. I, I, I came upstairs and he kind of must have clocked that I was like a little bit freaked out. And he was like, who are you? And I just said, I'm a comedian. And he said, I hate that. Which is the funniest thing I think he could have possibly said to me. That's the funniest response to someone telling you you're a comedian. Because he's not saying, like, I hate you. Or he's not saying, I hate that you're here. He's saying, like, I hate your whole deal. Like, your whole reason for being is, is bad to me. And so I just like backed off. I left. I went and did the show, came back, slept in this really weird, puffy bed. I think the house was also this guy's mom's who had died like somewhat recently. And like, I think that she might have died in the bed that I was staying in. That's also another separate thing. But it was another reason that I just felt very unsafe and weird in this situation. But I got up as early as I could. I did sleep, which is wild. But I left ASAP and I drove out of St. Louis and I have never been back. And I still think... I don't know. Like he, that guy wasn't wrong. Like I didn't put my foot in my mouth. I think by like saying that I was a comedian, I feel like I kind of walked into that building with my foot in my mouth, just like as a kid who didn't know anything chasing this like bizarre idea of an adventure for his life, like encountering people who were living real, very difficult lives. I just had nothing to offer to those people. And I still I still don't know totally what to make of that whole situation other than my main advice, I think, would be that if you do go to St. Louis, you should pay for a hotel room. That would be my main advice, I think. It's going to save you trouble in the long run. Thank you, Fed. We have heard three stories and we have three more stories coming up on this special radio edition of Sitka Tells Tales here on KCAW. Our next story comes from a recent New Jersey transplant to Sitka, who, like many of us, is addicted to the outdoor. Here's Austin Thomas. Thank you, Alan. I appreciate that. My story this evening is a first experience of mine in my life from time when I was very young. It was the first time I was ever approached by a prostitute. And this happened October 2015. I was 21 years old in the last year of college. I was studying abroad in Germany, but I ended up in Spain for a couple of weeks. And after that, we had a fall break, whole week off, do whatever we wanted. Me and one of my classmates decided, short flight, let's head over to Mallorca. Mallorca, if you don't know, is a small island off the coast of Spain. There's three of them. Bees is one of them, a little more popular, but just a place and an island's built for the nightlife a place you go to party for sure. And so me and my buddy are reading up about the place and we find out about a spot called Planet Dance. It's a 5,000 person club. And him and I are like, all right, last night, that's where we're headed. We're headed to the epicenter. We wanna see what it's all about. So last night comes, we show up, get there about 11, place closes at two. And we walk in and there's girls dancing from catwalks and the rafters and some guy dropped down from the ceiling playing a glass violin. And it's just a a place with 5,000 young people just having a good time. 
and everything around it is kind of built to that place, right? There's, there's taxis out front, there's food 24 seven, there's bars, other places around 24 seven. And I ended up losing my buddy in the swath of people and went outside. And the first person that I was approached by ended up being a prostitute. And, you know, she approached me and approached me with her services. And I looked her dead back in the eyes and said, why do you do this for whatever reason? And she looked back very matter of fact, and was like, it's my job. And I was like, all right, fair enough, fair enough. Next thing you know, you know, I got 20 minutes to kill and her and I just start going back and forth, talking for a little bit and hanging out. And she starts telling me about her kid and, and we, we get to becoming kind of friends. And I was like, Hey, how about this? How about you and I grab a bite to eat? So her and I look around, there's a bunch of little spots around. There's a McDonald's, uh, some other local fast food spots and a KFC. And I was like, let's go get KFC. So her and I walked down the street to KFC and I stayed in front of her in line. And I was like, to the guy, I was like, oh, I'll take a six piece chicken. And I was like, what do you want? And she was like, oh, all the same. So her and I sit there and you kind of wait for my buddy to get out of the place and they're hanging out on the curb. And it's a different place than, it's not as taboo, I guess, in the US, you know, uh, in Europe, it's more in your face. It's all over the place. It's more accepted. It's even, I mean, even the commercials are a little more risque in Europe. So that's, I don't know, that was a big thing for me, like going there. I was uh, shocked by that coming from, you know, New Jersey, never left the States before. And while her and I are just hanging out, my buddy comes out and sees us eating on the curb. And he's like, what the, what are you doing, man? I was like, oh, I'm just hanging out, hang out. And she walks with us and walks with us back for a little bit. And she's like, all right, I got, I got to get back to work and leaves. And Gavin was like, what was that, my buddy? And I was like, oh, that was the best six-piece chicken I've ever had. Thank you, Austin. We have two stories left to tell. The next coming from Lisa Bush. Now, Lisa claims she is known to her friends as the faux pas queen, which has gotten her into lots of hot water over the years. Yet saying the wrong thing to the right person changed the course of her life and landed her in Sitka, Alaska, 33 years ago. My college among science majors, geology majors are known as not the sharpest knives in the drawer. We were called jocks on rocks. And I was a D student among this crowd. Um, We were not known to be eloquent writers or speakers. So it came as quite a surprise to everyone I knew, including myself, when the first job I applied for out of college was in public radio in Alaska. And I'm sure I wrote on my cover letter, you know, the virtues of a liberal arts education, I can learn anything. And I'm, I'm sure I lied and said I was a quick learner. But whatever I wrote got me an interview. And the person that was masterminding the interview, this guy named Brian, he was a young hotshot reporter. He had blue eyes and blonde hair, and he was an Adonis. He was quite confident in himself, as only a 19 or 20-year-old can be. And what he had masterminded was basically a week-long interview that included me going live on the air, which I'd never done before. So I mispronounced all the Clinket and Russian names. I had to read the Marine forecast and I had 
wouldn't know a millibar low if it hit me in the head before that. I had to go to an assembly meeting until 11 o'clock at night, go back to the radio station, write the stories until two or three in the morning. This interview ended with eight people sitting around a table asking me journalistic ethics questions. Now, I was a geology major. I didn't know journalism had ethics. You know that feeling where your eyes fill up with tears, but you don't want to blink because you don't want people to know you're crying? I still remember that feeling during the interview. So at the end of the week, Brian drives me to the airport and he says to me, so if we offer you the job, are you going to take it? And I thought he was completely yanking my chain because I had bombed everything. And I said, no. And he said, why is that? And I I said, no, not if I have to work for you. And he said, oh, why is that? And I said, because you are a total bleep bleep, like two words you can't say on the air, but they rhyme with bass pole. (laughs) So I get on the plane and I, um, you know, think I'm never going to see this godforsaken town again, Sitka, Alaska. And I go back to New England. I wait two weeks, three weeks, a month goes by. Finally, I get a call from the radio station, Steve Well, and he offers me the job. And I'm just totally blown away. And he says, yeah, Brian told us the story about how you called him a bleep bleep. And the station manager said, she can call a spade a spade. You need to hire her. And that got me my first job. And I was a reporter for two years. I fell in love with Sitka. I loved it. But I was so insecure about my writing. You know, I I didn't do a lot of writing in college. And so I applied for another job in Washington, D.C. at a magazine. And the interview there was a power lunch. And there were people with suits and all these clinky glasses. And I just, I was, I didn't know if I should cut my salad with a knife or, you know, eat my spaghetti with a spoon. And I was sweating. And then came the question, well, how'd you end up in Alaska? And I thought, oh, I got this one. And I started telling the story. And halfway through the story, I'm like, this is a bad story. Like, this does not reflect well on me. But I didn't know how to change it. And so I just finished it up and just said, and then I said to the guy, you know, no, because you're a total bleep bleep. And, you know, remember, it rhymes with bass pole. And uh, the woman said, that's what you said? And I said, yeah. But I, and she goes, this is the managing editor. And she said, that's what you said. And I said, yeah. And I knew I'd blown it. So I get back on the plane, go back to Alaska. A couple weeks go by, three weeks go by, get a phone call. She offers me the job. And she says, I told the the top editor that story. And he said, wow, she's got chutzpah. You should hire her. So that story got me two jobs. And I decided I'm going to retire it and never use it in a job interview again. But, you know, so much of life we spend trying to figure out how to say the right thing to the right person. And I wish I could say that that was the only time I said the wrong Thing to the wrong person, but in that particular case, saying the wrong thing to the wrong person changed the course of my life. Bass pole, huh? I'm going to have to remember that one. Thank you so much, Lisa. And for all of you for tuning into Sitka Tales Tales. So we have one more story this evening whose teller, Frank Ecker, has decided to dedicate his one line of introduction to the carrot cake from the Backdoor Cafe on Wednesday mornings, for which he feels a deep appreciation and reverence. When I got the phone call to tell me that I've been admitted to Yale, 
I'm standing in my dad's high school biology classroom in my hometown in Montrose, Colorado. It's a small town in Southwest Colorado. And before I can even finish the call, my dad knows what is happening and just loses it. He drops all of his things. He runs out of the room and he runs through the halls of my high school from classroom to classroom, telling all of his friends and the guidance office and, uh, and the principal, my son got into Yale. My son got into Yale. And I can't imagine what it must've been like for him to be able to, to say those words as, as my dad. And that call, I think, was the end of my ability to relate to Montrose, Colorado. And I think that's what I wanted. I, I felt like Montrose couldn't hold all the things that I wanted to do and the person that I wanted to be. And so I, I had applied to schools up and down the East Coast, the West Coast. I knew I wanted to go. But I think what I didn't expect was that I would never be able to fully relate to Yale either. And the, the weight and the scale of that dissonance and that difference um, never felt more clear to me than uh, in the winter of my freshman year of college when I was invited to a scholarship dinner at the Yale Club of New York. It was at a penthouse of the Yale Club of New York. Imagine if the richest Manhattanites you could imagine tried to relive their bright college years in this high-rise building, like massive swimming pools on the 20th floor, like silver platters with finger food. It was this kind of wealth that I, I just couldn't imagine. And, and it created so much dissonance for me being there that night. But the kicker was that I showed up that evening in my crumpled suit with a massive swollen black eye that I had gotten the day before. I didn't get beat up. I got the black eye on my mail route. I was the Yale College Dean's Office career. Um, I was a glorified fax machine, but that was my job all the way through college. I worked all the way through college. And I think that's not an unusual thing. But I think at Yale, where you're sold this particular bill of goods, uh, this financial aid package that sort of tells you that you can, you can be equal on equal footing with your peers, regardless of your socioeconomic status, the asterisk to that was that low and middle income students had to work their way through their time at Yale to make up what their financial aid packages didn't cover. And the way that I was, I was sold that was, was the line that I would learn the, the inherent value of humility and, and the value of serving my peers, which I still believe in. I still think it was valuable to swipe my peers' dining hall cards and clean their dishes and deliver their mail. But what I began to notice was that my, my affluent peers never cleaned my dishes. So it's the morning of uh, the scholarship dinner and I'm on my mail route. I, I've donned my satchel. I am making my way to each of the 12 residential colleges at Yale. I have this route mastered. I can do the whole thing in less than an hour because I know all the, the back routes and alleyways and ways to navigate the institution. And so I I'm at the second of the 12 residential colleges. It's called Silliman College. And I know that to get through Silliman College, I need to take a shortcut through the back door. And so I go through the office at Silliman. I exchange the little orange inner office envelopes. And I go through the first door at the back of Silliman College. There are two doors. There's the first door, which leads into this kind of storage closet. And then a second door, which leads out onto the street, a main thoroughfare through New Haven. And... I get through the first door, I walk into the storage closet, it's dark, and the first door shuts behind me. I walk across the room and push on the second door and it won't open. It is winter in New Haven, it had rained and then sleeted and then frozen, and so the door was 
frozen shut. And so I, I turned around, I walked back across the room and I pushed on the first door and it had locked behind me. And I started to panic. I, I pounded on the door and I, I was yelling and, and no one heard me. I, everyone I'd seen in the office must have gone to lunch and they pulled up my phone and, and there was no cell service because I was in this, in this weird sort of basement closet room on the street um, and I couldn't call anyone. And I came to this realization that I, I just wasn't going to be able to finish my shift. And the panic shifted really quickly to, to resignation. I was going through the first real heartbreak of my life. My debit card had been declined at a coffee shop earlier that morning. And it wasn't just about money, but it also was about money in so many ways. And so I sort of stopped and, and sat there and in that moment never felt less seen or, or less heard. But after enough time, I knew I had to get out of the closet eventually. So I stood up and I decided I would make one run at the door and I steeled myself. I took a couple steps back and I ran at the door. I lowered my shoulder and when I hit it, a couple of things happened at once. First, the ice shatters and the door flings open. But when it does, my head whiplashes and hits the door, it hits my head on the temple. It breaks my glasses, they fly off my face, and I just feel this throbbing and aching behind my right eye. My glasses are lying on the ground. And I look around and Yale is just going on around me as per usual. Students are walking by, no one notices me. I'm standing there with my broken glasses on the ground. And so I pick them up and I go home. And so later that night in the bathroom of the Yale Club of New York, I'm looking at myself in the mirror and looking at this black eye and the gilded sinks and the mouthwash with the little cups. And I still feel trapped there in the dark in the storage closet. And I think when I feel most alone or least understood or most out of place, I'm still there in that storage closet. And this isn't a story about how I bucked up the courage and pulled up my bootstraps and broke down the door and, and presented myself with this kind of like rugged anomaly to the distinguished guests of the Yale Club of New York. What I'm trying to say is the second door never should have been frozen at all. Thanks. Wow. What I love about these stories is what people share, the vulnerability, the humor, taking us to places that we might not imagine. So a huge thanks to Frank and our other storytellers for bringing Sitka Tales tales to life on the radio. But also thanks to Micah Pruitt, our behind the scenes timer of tales, the Sitka Daily Sentinel and the Sitka Soup for getting the word out. And to all of you who've tuned in here on KCAW Wading Radio. So thanks again, stay safe and healthy and tune in again for more Sitka Tells Tales presented both live and from the vault on KCAW Raven Radio. Thank you for joining us for Sitka Tells Tales, a live storytelling event based in Sitka, Alaska. And thank you to our storytellers tonight, Greta Healy, Rachel Moreno, Finn Straley, Austin Thomas, Lisa Bush, Frank Ecker, and thank you to Aussie from the band Bumia for his story and song. And thank you to KCAW as well. To find out more about Sitka Tells Tales and to hear other episodes of the podcast, you can visit artchangeinc.org. Your host this evening was Ellen Frankenstein, and our theme song is Clinktail by Poddington Bear. 
This production of Sitka Tells Tales, Stories from the Vault, was supported in part by a grant from the Sitka Humanities Forum and the National Endowment for the Humanities, a federal agency.